We are in chapter 2 of Philippians. We've been working our way through the book of uh, Philippians. Paul uh, is the apostle to the Gentiles, especially uh, called. He is the human author uh, of the book, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He started out in chapter 1 talking about joy. And so the circumstances that he is in, he's in jail. Uh, he's been in jail for four years. He's not been able to interact much, if at all, with most of the churches that he's planted, including the one at Philippi. Uh, the, the people at Philippi, the church of Philippi, become concerned about him. Uh, so send an individual, Epaphroditus, to go see how he's doing, uh, and then send him some resources as well. Um, he sends the letter back, right? And then he starts off the letter by expressing what great joy he has, how thankful he is for them, uh, for their walk. Uh, he then talks about how he uh, wants to encourage them that his circumstances are under God's control, and that they are actually advancing the gospel, even though you would think a, a pastor locked up for four years would not advance the gospel, he's saying actually it is. And he gives several examples uh, of how the gospel is being advanced, even through uh, his imprisonment. And then he turns from encouraging them to pastoring. So it's been four years, and he wants to pastor this group of people. And so we see that turn in the latter half of chapter 1, and in the beginning of chapter 2, where he starts to give some instruction. Uh, different from the other books. So last year we studied 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinth, the church at Corinth, was a mess. Um, there was conflict, there was immorality, uh, there was selfishness. Uh, we walked through that last year. You saw all sorts of issues within the church. Um, strangely enough, or not, maybe not you know, happily enough, if you will, uh, the church at Philippi, he doesn't address any moral issues. So there appears to have not, not be any moral issues going on at the church. There's actually no doctrinal issues going on at the church, at least none that he feels he needs to address. And so when, when he turns to pastoring, he's really focused on two primary issues, and that is pride and conflict. And so for the rest of the book, we're going to be dealing with pride and conflict. Um, so what, how do we handle pride and conflict in the church? In a solid church that has solid leadership, that is doing the right things, how does the devil attack? And in most cases, the devil attacks with pride and conflict because you feel really good about what you're doing, right? And so there is a, a tendency to become prideful in that. And then there's a real tendency to want it to go your way because it's working well, right? So there's conflict associated with that. So that's what appears to be going on. Um, and so at the end of chapter 1, we see in verse 27, we see him encourage them in their walk. He says, let only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to be unified in purpose. And then the question is, how do you become unified in purpose, right? And so that's what he dives into in chapter 2, is what I titled the motives, the means, and the model for unity uh, in the church. And so we're going to look at that in verses 1 through 11. Uh, but again, as an introduction, why is unity so important? Does, does, do, we, do we talk at all about unity elsewhere in the scriptures? 
What did Jesus say about the unity of the church? So one of the primary goals, one of the two primary commandments is to love each other, right? So Jesus is about to head to the cross. He has the priestly prayer uh, in John 17, 9, what we call the priestly prayer. He's praying, he's pouring his heart out to God, right? In John 17, and this is what he says in verse 9 and following. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you get, have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, I, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The unity of the church, the unity of God's people, was a primary concern for Jesus himself. Right before he goes to the cross, he's praying for unity. And so it's a major concern. The apostles picked this up as they're writing through the scripture. So we looked at Ephesians uh, two years ago. <clears throat> In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul's writing uh, to the church at Ephesus, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So very similar to 127 here in Philippians, right? To walk in a worthy manner of the gospel. With all humility, verse 2 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. <clears throat> I've often said, listen, God would not have to command us to bear with one another in love if that wasn't going to be difficult from time to time, right? And so he gives us this instruction because we need to hear it. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Right? He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be one. He wants us to be a body that is functioning correctly and functioning correctly together. 1 Corinthians 1.10, to the church at Corinth, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Right? So this is a major issue, not just in Philippi, but we see it in Ephesus, we see it in Corinth, we see Jesus himself praying for the whole church. So the question is, how? Right? How do we seek unity? The world would tell you to seek unity by tolerance. Right? Let's just all get along. Let's not try to argue. We're going to see that that is not the way to obtain unity. It's not the way that uh, Paul describes it in any of his letters. Instead, he calls us first to remember. So interesting to me, um, so a lot of people will talk about the Sabbath. Should we keep the Sabbath holy? Is it necessary to keep the Sabbath holy? When I was growing up, um, it was a sin to wash your car and mow the lawn on Sunday. Right? So my parents were Sabbath people. Right? Um, as I grew up, the church has become more flexible with their definition of Sabbath. And I've learned a lot more about Sabbath. I, I will... We can have that discussion sometime. I will tell you there is a reason why God tells us to pause. He tells us to pause and remember when we use the Lord's Supper. Why are we pausing and remembering? 
because we are forgetful, busy people. And so the Lord's Supper provides us with an opportunity to pause and remember what Jesus did. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we are to actually be thinking through in our minds what is this act that Jesus did for us, remembering that, and then from that, developing an appreciation. Right? The Sabbath day is very similar to that. Right? God said stop one day out of the week and remember. Right? Pause from your busyness and dedicate your life. Why? Because if you look at all of human history, we get super busy, and if we don't pause on a regular basis, then what happens is we forget about God, right? So there are many times where God says, pause, remember, right? And if in the beginning of Revelation, he, he's saying to these churches, he's in giving instructions to these churches, and he tells them, remember, right? And so here in chapter 2, he's saying, remember. He doesn't use the word, but that's really what he's saying. So in verse 1, let's read... Uh, 1 through 11, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at your own interests, but also in the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He says, if, so if, right? Is there any encouragement in Christ? And so it's an implied, right? So you, this is, you're supposed to say, of course there is, right? And so if there is any encouragement in Christ, what kind of encouragement do we get from Christ? Well, obviously if we stop and reflect on what Christ has done, the work in our lives where he has protected us, provided for us, cared for us, um, we get encouragement from how God has guided our lives. And so present and future uh, encouragement. Is there any comfort from love? <clears throat> what kind of love did Jesus bestow on you? I mean, he loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. That's the ultimate definition of love. Right? When in Ephesians 5, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, it's a willingness to die for his spouse. That's what that is. And so, uh, biblical definition of love is self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. And so, if there is any comfort from love, that's who Jesus is for you. If there is any participation in the Spirit, we know that at the point of salvation, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I pointed that out in the sermon last week. 
um, that there is this indwelling uh, spirit in us that is guiding our conscience, that is convicting us of sin, that is encouraging us to do things in the right way. It changes our heart and helps us to make better decisions. So there's this indwelling, regeneration, gifting, strengthening that happens from the Spirit. So if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Um, so not only does the Spirit indwell us and encourage us, but it is, it, we are told that the Spirit is interceding for us, and Christ is interceding for us. And so there is not just um, this indwelling, you know, conscience, if you will, but there is an affection. They are doing things on your behalf uh, as part of the Godhead. And then finally, he says, um, any affection and sympathy complete my joy. So Paul is appealing to them as their pastor. Listen, I came, I was the one who was the original person who founded the church in Philippi. I have prayed for you on a daily basis. I have tried to encourage you. If there is anything um, that you feel from that, then I'm asking you to complete my joy by being one. Right? So what is the motive? Well, the motive is what Christ has done. Right? So the motive that we should seek unity within the church is to look at the Godhead and say, look at everything that God has done for us. And then that should be our motive uh, for seeking unity. So what does, how do we do that? You know, what, what does that look like? What are the marks of that unity? Um, he goes on by, in verse 2 by saying, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So what are the marks of unity? Same mind. So you are thinking alike. This isn't just doctrinally. So the basis is for unity. And you'll see this in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. The basis for unity, the way that we get to unity as a church is we both submit to the scripture. So rather than you seeking your desires and opinions and me seeking my desires and opinions, if you want to have unity in the church, what you do is both of you submit to the scriptures and then you seek to understand what the scriptures in, instruct and then you have unity, right? I mean, that's the way that this happens. This is not my opinion, my preference. This is me, us both submitting to the same standard, the canon, the Bible, God's word, right? So how do we have the same mind? We have the same mind because we agree with the scriptures. So we think alike, not just doctrinally though, but we also think alike in purpose. And so our attitude, our mindset, our desire is the same. And then we have the same love. We show each other the same love Jesus showered upon us. He says, in many cases, he says, listen, forgive each other as I forgave you. Right? So we're constantly looking at the other person, and we're constantly remembering the work of Christ for us, and we show the same love to them. How difficult is that? That's really hard. Right? We forget frequently how much God has forgiven us. And we don't feel like we need to forgive the other like we, right? She has a... So if one of the marks of uh, being in unity with one another is submitting to the scriptures mutually, what about like an issue specifically that's not talked about in the scriptures? Like I think of the kind of story with, I think it was Mark, where 
Paul was really upset with him that he didn't, you know, blast out the missionary effort, and then Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance, and they just split and went their separate ways. Like, if you looked at that, that would seem to be disunified, but I don't know if that would be an example of something like that. It actually was disunified. So I would say Paul was actually wrong in that situation. So, and you see later, I don't remember where it is, in one of the, um, I want to say it's Corinthians, but I might be wrong. At the end of one of his letters, Paul actually asks for Mark to come back to him, right? So, um, so we all have giftedness, right? Uh, so I've got, I've mentioned this before. I've got a friend who's very much so a Barnabas. He's a, he's a people person. He, uh, he cares about your feelings. Um, he, he wants to hear about you. If you sat down with him, you would feel like you were the most important person in the room, right? Because he's constant. He, he has that personality. Um, I have a tendency not to care um, about you in your life. Um, I'm working on it. My wife is really working on me on that one. Um, and so it, they're, they're, we all have these personalities. That was Paul, right? I mean, Paul was black and white doctrinal person. He was a teacher. He, but when it came to personal relationships, he was not good, right? And he didn't have a lot of patience. And so um, the, the reference that Kelly's making is they're out on a missionary journey, and Mark kind of gets to a point where he's kind of done. And so he wants to go back to Jerusalem to go home, and the journey is supposed to go, if I'm remembering right, back to Antioch. And Barnabas is pleading for patience for this young disciple, and Paul's like, no, he's abandoning us, he's not worth it, get rid of him. So Barnabas takes, is it Barnabas or Silas? Is it Barnabas? He takes Mark, and Paul goes to Antioch because he feels like that's the calling, and they split. And then Silas actually comes alongside Paul to try to help Paul in the same thing that Barnabas did. Um, so anyway, I would say that there was actually a breakdown, if you will, of unity based on personality that was probably inappropriate in that situation. Um, and so um, we get these great examples in the scriptures of these men, but the best of men are men at best, and in that situation, I would say Paul was probably not patient enough. Uh, interestingly, later in his life, um, he um, is asking for Mark to come back. He's recognized that maybe he's made a mistake uh, and asking for him to come back. Um, you see these transformations in the scriptures. John, the apostle John, is, um, is a son of thunder in the Gospels. And if you look at his later writings, they're all about love. Now, how does a son of thunder become somebody who's so focused on love in the church? So there's hope for me is what I'm trying to get at there, um, is that maybe um, we can all grow and improve in those areas. But um, So that you do have examples where this broke down uh, in the church and the scriptures. And I think that might be one of them. So, same mind, same love, same uh, full accord. Um, so united in spirit, united in passion, a real desire to move forward as a body. One mind, so one purpose. Um, these are all marks of a unified church. This is what we should be striving for uh, as a church. So then he goes into how do we attain it? What are the things that we have to do? The, the first set is more associated with our attitude or our mindset. These are actually actions. What are the things that we need to put off and put on, as uh, Paul talked about in Ephesians? So verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest 
of others. So remove selfish ambition. Goal number one, right? So um, we all have a tendency to desire to glorify ourselves, right? To have our own personal needs and desires met. So selfish ambition, our personal ambitions, our own agenda, our own objectives, our own ministry, this happens in the church. And so we have a tendency to want to push forward with our own thing rather than the, the best for the whole church. So we remove selfish ambition. We remove conceit. So conceit is empty, conceit, vain, glory, uh, our own personal glory. Paul kind of alludes to this in chapter 1 where he's got uh, people who he probably raised up in the faith who are talented teachers who are taking advantage of the fact that he is in prison to try to advance their ministry right that's what he's addressing here is he's saying listen you've got if you want to have unity you've got to put off that vain conceit that desire to glorify uh, yourself and then he flips it and says the positive but put on humility so in humility count others more significant than yourselves humility in mind you you're desiring what's important for others you you recognize, um, as I'm listening to sermons on this in the last couple of weeks, you're recognizing that you are the greatest sinner that you know. It was interesting. Um, John MacArthur is someone I listen to a lot. Alistair Begg is someone I listen to a lot. John MacArthur's kids, um, on a regular basis, would tell him he is a way better pastor than what he should be. And he mentions this in his sermons. You know, so... It's interesting, you listen to this, you go, this guy is a gifted teacher, he never makes a misstep, right? And yet, um, his kids are saying, wow, you are a way better pastor than what you really should be, based on what we know about you, right? Um, and so, that's the, that's the truth, that's the facts of the matter, right? We, we all have our sinful tendencies, even some of these people that we put up on a pedestal and go, man, they're doing things the right way. Um, and so, you are the greatest sinner you know. You, you know what's going on in your heart. You know where you're stumbling. No one else necessarily sees that. Um, and so in, in that, you should have some humility. You should realize and recognize your own fallenness and have a lot of patience um, with others. And then uh, the last thing he says here in verse 4, let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. <clears throat> so there's a ton of passages on this. Chris actually alluded to it earlier. Uh, so Luke 10 27, when Jesus is asked, uh, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment? He answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You should be concerned. This is a concept that goes throughout the scriptures. Romans 12, 9 and following says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So we, there was a, a black pastor that my wife and I were listening to at a at a uh, at a marriage conference uh, years ago, probably ten or twelve years ago, and he was emphasizing this: outdo one another. And so um, he had made it a competition between he and his wife. And so if she ironed one thing for him, he would iron two things for her. And so he could never be outdone by his wife. That was his goal, is to outdo his wife um, in serving her. 
it's interesting i'm not sure that's the best perspective to have on the deal but i thought it was interesting he really had a real desire to outdo his wife in that area and then mark nine thirty three says and they came and they came to capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way this is jesus and the disciples they are moving toward the cross jesus has told them on multiple occasions that he's going to jerusalem and die if you remember this narrative um just prior to this and he they addresses it in verse 34 of mark 9 but they kept silent on the way for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest and jesus sat down and called the twelve and he said to them if anyone would be first he must be last and servant to them all right so you've got jesus who's told them on multiple occasions i'm going to love you so much i'm going to go die for you and they're arguing about who's the greatest right who's the one who's going to sit next to jesus on the right hand when jesus enters his kingdom we have that tendency not not to be hearing and not but to be elevating ourselves and so when paul says in verse 4 of Philippians 2, let each of you not look only on your own interests, but on the interests of others. This is consistent, uh, consistent concern uh, in the church. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so who is our example? Obviously, it's Jesus. He's the one that we look to to be able to fulfill these things like a lack of selfish ambition, a lack of conceit, and a lack of humility. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus in, in John 13 washes the feet of the disciples, right? And he says to them, Do you understand that what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, for I am. If I then, your, teach, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should do so for one another, right? So he's giving us this example of a person who is not looking for his own interest. Verse 6. And then he expands on what Jesus has done by saying in verse 6, And who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death. I think we need to be a little bit careful uh, with this passage because we need to understand what these words mean. So in English, we have words that mean certain things, right? So I want to do some definitions. So what does it mean to be in the form of God? Does that mean that he wasn't God? He was just in the form of God? And that's not what that means. What it means is the form, the word there in Greek that's being used is essence, nature, the very being of God. So that's a very affirmative phrase. So, so when you um, are attacked in your Christian faith, people will try to pick out words, and they will try to define them in a certain term. And so you, not everybody's going to be a Greek scholar, so you're going to have to be a little bit careful, right? But you're going to want to seek definition. So if you are questioned, whether it be this passage or another passage, make sure that you're going back. And you're really trying to understand what these words mean. So the definition of the Greek word, the form, is nature, essence, very being. So he is the very being of God. 
So it can be read, who though he was in the very being, he was the very being of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So he was, he was equal to God, but he chose not to hold on to it. So that word grasp means I'm not going to hold on. I've got an open hand. And so Jesus, as a part of the Godhead, there at the point of creation, participating in the creation of the world, he, sitting in heaven, decides that he is willing to give up something, right? Give up his seat and to come to earth. So, to be very well read, though he was the very being of God, did not count equality of God to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So there's that word again, form, the very essence, the very being of a servant. So he was fully God and he was fully man. Right? And then being born in the likeness of man. So then was he fully man or not? That word likeness means like, like every other man. <clears throat> So, did anyone who grew up with Jesus really recognize that he was any different than any other teenage kid? And I'm sure there were some differences, right? I'm sure, I mean, I, I remember as a second grader, for some reason, I kept, you know, was raised believing Christ was coming back at any moment. <clears throat> and there was this little blonde-haired kid in my class who never did anything wrong, and I'm like, kind of wondering if that's the Christ. Right, um, because he never ever disobeyed, and I was always getting in trouble. Right, so it was like, yeah, that kid might be the Christ. I be <laughs> right. So what this really means is, is that they didn't recognize a lot of differences between him and, and any other man. He he didn't stand out in the crowd. Right. He actually was very poor, and he was the carpenter's son, and he. He um, built things with uh, his dad, uh, with his hands. Um, so the very form of the being born in the likeness of man. And then in verse 8, and being found in human form. So again, that word form, the very essence, very human, he was fully man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death. And so being found a man, but never sinning. So how is it humbling that he died? It was humbling that he died because he died even though he never sinned. So remember, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The reason that death occurs is because of sin. But Jesus shouldn't have died because he never sinned. And yet he humbled himself willingly died so he was fully human and he humbled himself and willingly died even though he didn't deserve to die right so he humbled himself and then even death on a cross <clears throat> not only did he die but he died the most gruesome humiliating painful death that you could die at that point in history right and so when we look at the example of, okay, I want to find unity in the church, and I need to act in a certain way in order to pursue unity in the church, and the example that I'm going to pause and remember is Jesus, you go, okay, i got a long ways to go before I get there, right? 
I mean, that's what he's trying to do for us uh, when he outlines what Jesus has done very clearly. And in the last few verses here, we see how God responds, right? So we see verse 9 in chapter 2, God the Father responds. He says, and therefore God, was highly, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. How does the God the Father respond to the work of Jesus? Well, he exalts him. Right? So God, Jesus humbled himself. God exalts him. So Jesus puts himself down. God lifts him up. And this is a principle we see throughout the scriptures, right? So Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 14, I tell you, and this is the man who is in the temple, he's praying, and he's saying, what a terrible person he is, right? And Jesus says, to, in that, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, so I can give you multiple passages. I can keep going if you'd like. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? This is a concept. He wants us to have that attitude, that mindset that Jesus had. He gives us the example, and then he says, if you would want to be exalted, you need to humble yourself and then let God do the exalting. How did Jesus, how did God exalt Jesus? Well, we see that he exalted him by bestowing on him the name that is above every name. Acts 2.32 says that, that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, Jesus is sitting at the right hand. The right hand of God the Father is that person that has been bestowed the authority from the Father. So he's exalted to the highest place that's possible next to the Father. What is the name that is above every name? So MacArthur goes on for like, 50 minutes on this very sentence. The name that is above every name. Is that name Jesus? The answer is no. He had that name already. He was given that name at birth. That name means that there is salvation in the Lord. It wasn't Jesus. What about Messiah? Christ. The answer is no. That was also a name that he had prior to this point prior to his death and resurrection. So the name that is above every name is Lord. He did not have that name prior. And so it's a reference to his rulership. The word Lord in general means deity, sovereignty, rulership. This is an acknowledgement of who Jesus always was. 
Interestingly, we talk a lot about Jesus as our Savior. We have a tendency not to talk about Jesus as our Lord. 